0: you know, we see a lot of remedies like, oh, let me pee on my kid's leg, etc. So, you know, the first thing is you want to get out of the water. I mean, you want to get out of wherever that's at as soon as possible. And then really, it comes, comes down to, like, let's talk about the United States. It comes down to really two options. You have hot water or not hot water. So, you know, if you're at the beach, you probably don't have hot water. If you're on a boat, unless you have a really nice big boat, you probably don't have hot water. But if you're at a beach house or a condo, then you may have access to hot water. So, If you have hot water, the best answer is to get all nematocysts, all the tentacles off you, rinse it with salt water. You want to avoid fresh water because it actually promotes the release of these nematocysts that sting you. Yeah, so you want to just get the tentacles off. So pull them off and then rinse yourself off with salt water. And then you want to go immerse yourself in hot water, like 104 to 110 degrees. And that's supposed to, that's thought to deactivate the uh, cysts and be the best pain relief. This is Dr. Max Baumgartner. And this is a Tom Roland podcast.
1: That was Dr. Max Baumgardner, and he was nice enough to come into the studio and dispel some myths, as well as talking about common injuries that happen on the boat and what we can do about them on site, or when we need to get to the emergency room ASAP. I learned a ton from Max, and I really appreciate him coming in. He also brought his entire medical kit of what he takes on the boat. He unloads that and explains why he has every single thing that he carries in his medical kit. I learned a ton. I think you will, too. Dr. Max Baumgartner. All right, Max. How are you, man? Hey, great. How are you doing, Tom? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I really appreciate you coming in. And what I appreciate even more, a couple things, through the podcast at saltwaterexperience.com, you've communicated with me for almost a year now, mm-hmm. and uh, you've given me some great guest suggestions. You even offered to help my son out, which I really appreciate. That was, that was amazing because he's considering medical school, and you very graciously offered you know for him to shadow you or or i don't know I don't even know you guys took it from from there. I introduced you in email, and he just said that uh, you were incredibly gracious and nice, and I appreciate that I absolutely mean, when people start doing things for your kids, that's when like I don't need people really to do things for me, like people are like, oh, let me take you fishing or whatever, but if they were to do that for my kids, that's like a whole different thing, so I really appreciate that thank you absolutely and then as it comes to today's show. This is very interesting. This is the first time that somebody that listens to the show has offered a suggestion for a show other than just a guest suggestion. But this particular suggestion, I was like, well, yeah, that sounds great. So what you do is you are an ER doctor, right? Give me your background.
0: So I was born and raised in uh, West Virginia. Um, I grew up there, you know, hunting and fishing, primarily fishing. And along the way, I decided I wanted to be a, a physician. My uncle was a physician and kind of led an example for that. And um, I always liked things like um, being outdoors and, and EMS and firefighting. My father and my grandfather, and even I believe my great grandfather were volunteer firefighters in our hometown because it was a small town where they don't have paid fire departments. So um, I kind of got interested in that and I love to ski. And I'm like, well, how can I ski for free in the wintertime? Well, the answer is you either become a ski instructor or a ski patroller. And so ski patroller was kind of, you know, it was it was very aligned with first aid and helping people. So when I was 16, I uh, joined the National Ski Patrol at a resort in Pennsylvania. And then when I became 18, I joined our local fire department. I got my EMT license and, and then my paramedic certificate. And I did that, you know, finishing high school and then grad- and going to college. So I kind of did all that when, when I was in college studying to go to medical school. And uh, it was just a really great experience. You know, people asked me, you know, where was my fraternity? And really it was, you know, the guys in our, the volunteer fire departments were really, really, and they really helped me out a lot. I mean, I felt like I had zero talent and, you know, these guys were, you know, three times my age, some of them and very mature and experienced. And, you know, here I am, 18 years old, trying to learn these skills. So a lot of people helped me along the way. And then I got into medical school and I went to medical school in West Virginia um, in, the, in the southeast part of the state. Um, great fly fishing there, actually. People were like, oh, how's the outdoors? And. And Western is very underrated for that. I'm not trying to put it as a promotion, but it's uh, very underrated. And then I went to residency at Michigan State and did emergency medicine there. Taught at the uh, Michigan State Medical School with the residency program. And then we've been in Florida for 10 years. Uh, we moved down here 10 years ago.
1: So. so basically, your entry into the medical world happened because you wanted to spend time outdoors?
0: Well, no. I, maybe I uh, misspoke that. I guess I like being outdoors and. Being outdoors led me to some opportunities to further learn more about medicine, you know, kind of like your son did the uh, wilderness EMT course. That's probably very similar. I'm not taking a wilderness EMT course, but that's probably very similar to what they call, what they used to call outdoor emergency care, which is the first day part of uh, ski patrol. So, you know, that, you know, the more you learn, you know, it either turns you on or off to that subject. So, you know, I learned a little bit and I wanted to do more. And then I went to EMT school and then, hey, I want to do more.
1: Hmm. And that's kind of where he is right now. Yeah. Like he's thinking about maybe paramedic next. Yeah. Um, and then he's thinking, you know, I really like this. And it was kind of a, it was kind of a weird path for him because basically he started that EMT because he wanted to be a an elk hunting guide. Doesn't have a lot of experience elk hunting, uh, or he didn't at the time have a lot of experience enough to really be an elk hunting guide. So he asked me, like, how, how am I going to make this happen? Cause I really want to make this happen. I'm like, well, you know, can you do something to where, you can add value to to your resume and add value to to yourself as a as an asset to them. So, and and it's like the story with uh, Nick Saban, I think, where he says, um, "You don't want to be a a but, you want to be an and." So, when somebody says, "Well, this guy's a great tailback, he's really fast, he's probably the third fastest guy in the whole southeastern conference," but you know, he's kind of hard to get along with. He doesn't have really good grades. Or do you want to be the guy that says, this guy, he's probably the 10th fastest person in the in the Southeastern Conference, and he's a great team leader, and he might be the valedictorian. He was a valedictorian of his high school class, and he, you know, can add to the team in all of these other ways. And so I've told my kids that for a long time. Like, think about the ands. And so the EMT was an and. Like, here's a guy that loves hunting he he really is not afraid of hard work and he's a wilderness EMT and EMT and i was like that's going to put you way up there absolutely and and so that's that's kind of his entry but now he's kind of like well i did it for that but i really like medicine you know or the idea of medicine so his interest in school has been completely renewed oh, and so great. he's he's all in now and my other son moved out there too so now i have two in montana <laughs> So, over all those years and all that experience, you've seen some good things, probably some bad things, <laughs> a lot of stories, I'm sure. Between ski patrol and all of the other things, what what requires the most uh, out of a a person like yourself that's that's an EMT or or kind of you're on ski patrol so that you can ski for free, but you know you're, you you want to help people as well. Right? right. Um, are you? Where, where are you using your skills most? Are uh, you talking about now or then? No, then. You, you know, when I
0: was a ski patroller, where I worked, it was half volunteer and half paid or what we call professional. At the time, the terms may have changed. I mean, I haven't done this that for 18 years, but about two-thirds of the weekend ski patrollers at most of the small ski resorts are all volunteers, mm-hmm. actually. So they go to class and, you know, when you work your shift, you get to ski, which is great. You get to ski first tracks and last tracks. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time in the 90s, you know, we were skiing in the half pipe, which that wasn't really even a thing, or I don't think it was a thing, but, you know, we got to go in the half pipe, which was really cool. And, and now I think it's a pretty popular sport, but we would take shifts. Sometimes you'd, you'd work in the first aid hut. Sometimes you'd be out patrolling and, you know, you would, someone would grab you. Hey, there's somebody injured. There's other things as well, like patrol, you know, like trail maintenance, marking off trails, helping with lift lines. So there's, there are some other, other uh, maintenance things to the uh, entire operation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of skiing, a lot of first AMS, the yeah. two biggest things about it. And the it.
1: first age, you're seeing like a lot of twisted ankles, a lot of hurt knees.
0: Yeah, broken ankles. I mean, people fall off chairless, you know, and, and then we also would do mountain bike races in the summertime because they've got a lot of summer events. So they'd ask us to help with those. So, you know, you see somebody go down a 40, you know, 40 degree decline <laughs> on a bike and, you know, go over the handlebars. You know, that's more than a scratch. So right. we see a lot of broken collarbones, arms, hands broken legs um, and then unfortunately every once in a while you get people that you know fall off a chairlift or a chairlift breaks mm. and that was actually one of the funnest things about training was we had to repel off of the chairlift you know so I showed my wife a picture of this maybe two or three weeks ago it was on TV randomly showed ski patrollers repelling off the chairlift and she's like Oh my goodness! I'm like, yeah, we do this every year as part of it, you know, your, your training, and you know, and so that was really neat. It's just a really, really cool experience. Like, where else can you, you know, rappel 100 feet off a chairlift? No right. gonna let you do that. So, <laughs> it was, uh, it was, a, it was a really great time, and and uh, the variety of people to do that. I mean, there were people that were executives um, of major corporations that were doing this. There were people that were carpenters. There were people in school. Really, all walks of life c- compiled our uh, ski patrol unit. It was really amazing. So. That's cool. I and mean, they're doctors and dentists and, and everybody on there. So
1: And so now as you spend ten years in Florida, you're seeing some different different types of injuries on a regular basis. And that was kind of the idea mm-hmm. for for this particular show of like what I'm interested in for the most part is things I want to know the difference between things that I can do to remedy the situation, <clears throat> like a fish hook and a finger. Okay. We can take that out. Right. Things that happen where you should stabilize and immediately get help and things that you should absolutely not touch. Right. That's what I would like to know the difference of. Perfect. Because, you know, I, in my career guiding, I had somebody have a heart attack. I've had, you know, uh, hooks in every part of my body except for my eye just about. <laughs> and those are all minor. I had a guy break his leg on a film shoot. And luckily, luckily we haven't had very many injuries, but we're, you know, prepared for mm-hmm. them. And as you're, a, <clears throat> as a fishing guide, I would take a first aid CPR course every year, which I think is smart. And uh, but but then you know that's as far as you go. So right. if someone breaks their leg, like what do you do? If someone gets a fish hook in a certain part of the body, where at what point do you not take it out? So you you kind of compiled a list here that's just really interesting, and uh, so I just thought we would kind of go down go down this list and hear hear kind of what you thought,
0: and hope I didn't overwhelm me with this list. Well,
1: it's a big <laughs> it's a big list, but we've got a lot of time. He's like holy cow, all um, these injuries. We've got a lot of time. So the most common injury on a boat, in my opinion, is sunburn. Absolutely. So. Sunburn, I've seen it to where it is so bad I couldn't even believe it with this one young lady that came, and I still am in touch with these people. Uh, but her face and head got so sunburned that it blistered mm-hmm. really badly. Like, blisters like I've never seen, like the size of a quarter. Okay, so you obviously have just the little bit of sun sunburn that's easily, easily handled mm-hmm. by covering up and all of that. When does it get so bad that you tell the person... You really shouldn't be out here anymore.
0: Well, I, I think the first thing, you know, let's talk about for the, a big principle for all this is, you know, common sense and prevention. So and then the last one would be, uh, you know, don't don't uh, or do no harm. Don't further the injury. So right. we talk about sunburn. The first thing is prevention. So, you know, we see all, I mean, I was guilty. I remember growing up as a kid going to the beach and, you know, the sun come out and I was out on the beach. And, you know, three days later, I'm, you know, pulling skin off my back like a snake, you know, right. and so you know, that's not good. And so, a lot of people forget about, you know, putting on sunblock. And it's not just putting on sunblock, but reapplying it. You know, you're out in the water, you're active, you take clothes on and off all day. So, uh, you know, you need to reapply the sunblock. Um, there are a lot of good good uh, fabric companies out now um, that, um, you know, people should consider that as well. And and this is something I didn't even really understand myself uh, until a few years ago. So, I would always wear like a short sleeve shirt, put suntan lotion on, and we go out fishing for the day, and like, and you know, in Florida in the summertime, it's like, wow. I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, going to pass out. It's right. so hot. Right. So, you know, maybe three or four years ago, I said, let me buy a long sleeve shirt. Let me see what this is about. You know, is this a fad? Is this just a marketing ploy? I'm like, holy cow! I we got back. I was like, you know, I felt so much better. And so, these fabrics that breathe, it's like giving you shade. So you're even though it's you know 95 degrees outside, you wear a long sleeve shirt. The right fabric, it actually keeps you cooler. And wear a short sleeve shirt, and so that's a hard concept.
1: Certainly, at the end of the day, you feel better. That was my that was my path to covering up for the most part all the time. Was uh, when I first got to the keys, I was I'd go barefoot, shorts, no shirt, right? (laughs) Because that's how that's how you did it back then. But uh, and and by the end of the day, just wiped out, and I could go maybe two or three days in a row, and I'd have to take a couple days off. The other guides are going more like five days, six days, seven days. So I was like, huh long sleeve shirt, okay, feel better. Pants, feel better. Hat, bigger hat, feel better. Cover the face up with a buff, feel even better. Cover the hands up with gloves, feel better. Wear shoes on the boat, feel even better. Now I can go 30, 40 days in a row if I'm paying attention to my hydration, which is the second on the list. Oh, can
0: I I say one other thing about the suntan lotion? So, suntan lotion is fantastic. Um, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. The suntan lotion is fantastic. Uh, there's some data now about some lotions may have some chemicals that may or okay. may not be good for you. You know, That's the next question. We're learning a lot about all that now. And there's, there's several websites where they can, you know, kind of help guide you what's considered safer, you know, more safe or less safe as far as uh, chemicals go for those suntan lotions. I mean, it used to be, you know, ASPF 100, you know, great, put it on. And, and um, I actually didn't get this until I hired a fishing guide in Muskee Lagoon maybe four or five years ago, and I put some suntan lotion on. This is before the long shirts. And for me, I put some suntan lotion on and I went to grab one of his poles. like, hey, don't grab that pole. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, wash your hands off first. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay. And and he said, you see what that does on my fishing rods? And he had a fishing rod. That suntan lotion had corroded all of the metal on the pole. So, you know, if he'll do that to steel, think mm-hmm. about what that could possibly do to your skin. Right, right.
1: and especially like fly lines and monofilament, yeah. it, it can be really bad. You can see it on the sunscreen is one of the best things. If you get ink or, or some kind of something on your seats and you can't clean it up with, with bleach or something else, if you rub sunscreen on it, it'll come right off. Really? Yeah. It, <laughs> I mean, certain types of sunscreen. But wow. um, yeah, that was one of the thoughts that I had. I've I've always kind of had that is like sunscreen maybe, and this is totally, you know, an amateur idea, but I always thought, It's probably fine for the guy that goes out five times a year or once every weekend playing golf and puts a little on the back of his neck and stuff. But if you're a professional fishing guide making your living and you're putting it from your elbows to your fingertips, from your from the bottom of your shorts to the to your feet and on your face every single day for 40 years. Right. Where's the data that shows that anyone has ever done that before? I agree. So I just went to I don't know what's in this stuff. It's Tastes terrible when you get it in your mouth. It makes your mouth numb. Yeah. Like, is that good for you? I don't know if it's good or bad, but I'm going to just try to cover up.
0: Right. I think, I think the, probably the best solution for that is trying to cover up as much as you can. And then, you know, just, everybody's going to have exposed areas. You know, it's, again, it's probably better to prevent sunburn. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, not all sunscreens are bad. And sunscreen is it, not bad. I'm not trying to say sunscreen's bad. But you just want to make sure, you know, what you're putting on your body, and how often you're using it. And, you know, that's probably true for... More than just sunscreen, all chemicals. So. Right,
1: I'm sure. And, and also, just hasn't been out there that long to have all, enough studies. So, there probably are sunscreens that are horrible for you and others that aren't. And what, we just don't know that yet. What about
0: the ones that put the uh, baby oil to get more sun? Well, that's
1: like my <laughs> sisters when they were growing up. Like, you know, and then, then the trifold record album with the aluminum foil on the yeah. inside to, <laughs> to really reflect it even more. Yeah, uh, that's how we used to do it. All right. So, the other thing that I see regularly, hydration. People get dehydrated, and it is a, tell me if this is just a, if it has any merit to it, or if it's just a, a fishing guide talking about something that he doesn't know about. I would see people would come down, and on Monday, they were fine. Tuesday, not quite as good. Wednesday, they're kind of going downhill. By Thursday, they could hardly stand on the deck. By Friday, maybe they have a little bit of a rebound, and I was thinking, You know, this is a cumulative dehydration effect over the course of the week because what's happening is they get down there the first day, they've flown on an airplane, they've gotten a little bit dehydrated, they probably go out and have some beers or whatever at night, they're not sleeping as well, they're not, they're excited about fishing, they're not drinking as much water as they should. And day after day after day after day, they're drinking some water, they're being careful, but they're, but the sun and the environment there is just ringing all the moisture out of their body. Right. And over the course of a week, their energy level would just continue to drop. Is there anything to that?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, you go on
1: vacation, you're having a good time, and
0: and until you get really thirsty, you, you know, you forget. And being out in the sun, you need more water than if you're sitting inside. I mean, it's just, you know, if you're gonna, if I told you to go for a 5K run, you mm-hmm. would want to drink some water. Well, you couldn't use that much extra water just being out in the heat and the sun all day. So I think people fail to drink enough water and, you know, drink, drink enough electrolytes. And then what actually makes you make them more dehydrated is alcohol. So alcohol, um, it, it dehydrates you. You think, oh, you know, you know, somebody says, hey, I drank six beers. Well, you know, those six beers are going right into the toilet plus additional water and salt. So when you lose that salt now, all that water, you get more dehydrated. And, and just like you alluded, you know, people go out there on vacation, they have a good time and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's got to be a balance there. Mm-hmm. So,
1: so what do you think? What do you think the minimum that somebody should be thinking about when they're when they're on the boat, they're going to be on a week long fishing trip? <clears throat> what do you think the minimum would be that they should drink per day?
0: I think it's a little different for everybody. I mean, for for me personally, I try to drink a bottle of water probably at least every other hour. Probably a good indication of that is you know uh, are you peeing? You know, mm-hmm. so if you say hey, I haven't peed in six hours, well, you probably not, haven't drank enough water. So. Mm-hmm. Or you go pee and your urine is you know looks like tea. Well, that's probably a problem. So, so you know, if, and and the thing is, a lot of boats don't have bathrooms, so you don't want to have to pee mm-hmm. because of the, because of the inconvenience with that. But you know, you should stay hydrated. You know, if you're not drinking something every hour to two hours, you're you're probably getting behind the the game there. And then part of that is also showing up hydrated as well. Mm-hmm. So this is true for heat exhaustion or for hypothermia. The the better hydrated you are before you start, the less likely you are to get overheated or or hypothermic. So, you know, if I ask you to boil three liters of water versus five liters of water, it's going to take a lot more energy to get that larger pot of water, you know, hotter or colder. And so the same with your body. So the more hydrated you are, the more normal thermic you are before you go out, the more difficult it will be to, to get those things. So I think hydration, you know, is prevention beforehand. So, you know, you don't want to show up dehydrated uh, you want to make sure you're drinking some water on the boat. And you also want to mix it with some electrolytes because mm-hmm. when you sweat out, you lose salt. When you go to the bathroom, you lose salt. For you know, both of those, you're going to lose salt. So you want to make sure you mix that up with, you know, and it, it doesn't have to necessarily be water, or, I'm sorry, or beverages. It can be something to eat as well it has got salt. So, mm-hmm. hey, I don't like, you know, a sports drink, but I can eat something that's salty and have some water. That's probably an okay balance as
1: well. So, okay. Um, I take like a, like a, there's a um, medical, uh, medical grade uh, rehydration thing that i found drip drop do you yeah. know what that is i've heard of it i haven't haven't done any research so on it so anyway it, it works great for me and i if i'm if i'm sweating heavily <clears throat> i hit one of those and it's good and it tastes good it's very 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 light it it goes down easier but like a Gatorade a lot of people might be on a special diet or whatever they're trying to eliminate sugar right unfortunately a lot of these electrolyte replenishment drinks are full of sugar so people might start avoiding that and drinking more and more and more plain water. And at, at what point do you? I know there's hypon, hyponatremia, mm-hmm. but which you can tell us exactly what that is. But at what point do you start washing out the electrolytes when you're just drinking plain water over plain water, sweating heavily, sweating heavily? Maybe maybe you're on a special diet. You're not eating a lot of salt. And you're just drinking a ton of water. You see some people walking around with a gallon jug. And that's what I do when I get on the boat. I take a gallon of water on the boat with me and I try to finish that gallon of water by the end of the day. But I'm also taking an electrolyte supplement. Right. So at what point do you could you get yourself in trouble by drinking just plain water and no electrolyte supplement?
0: So every time you pee, every you know, when you sweat, you, you, you lose salt. Every time you pee, you're going to lose salt. It, it ha- you have to lose salt in order to to, to urinate. So... The more dehydrated you get, the less it goes out with it. But it's a constant rule that, that every time you, you have to go urinate, you're going to lose salt or sodium. So um, you have to replace this somehow. And so it, you'll start to get headaches and dizziness, uh, mental lethargy where you can't concentrate. You can start getting muscle cramps. And that's a combination of lack of water, but also lack of um, sodium and other, you know, trace electrolytes in, in your body and minerals as well. So you start to you start to see that. And what's really wild is it only takes a couple percentage points of dehydration to really feel the effects of that. Right. And so and the problem is is you know, if you've ever met somebody that's been severely dehydrated, you know, they say they feel awful and it takes a lot, lot longer to recover from that than it does to prevent that. So, you know, taking a gallon of water is great, but you, you also want to make sure you're consuming something else that has some form of electrolytes in it, like like the uh, substance you use a drip drop. Mm-hmm. And you know, everybody's a little different on that. So, the, you, like you said, a lot of the drinks have, are mostly sugar and they actually have salt in it as well. Mm-hmm. Those are, most of those are really geared towards um, endurance sports. Um, something we didn't say earlier, but I, I did the Ironman triathlon a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just training up to that and doing that, you, you've got to get that, that nutrition dialed in. And so, there were people that did, that took 200 milligrams of sodium an hour. There were people that took a gram of sodium an hour. And it's a matter of kind of fine dialing that in. Mm-hmm. And so when you drink more salt in your water and more sugar, you can absorb more water. That's why those drinks have salt and sugar in it because water, water falls salt and sugar everywhere in your body. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not saying you should go out and drink salt water. That's that's not the right message. But a little bit of sodium in the, in the drink and a little bit of sugar in the drink helps you absorb that. And they're made that way because when you're, you know, if I ask you to go run a marathon – You can drink a sport drink with sugar and salt in it. But if I said, you know, eat some peanut butter or something that's got fat (laughs) in it or protein, you know, you're like, no way. You know, if I said, here's all your salt, but it's on a steak, Mm -hmm. you couldn't do that because your body shunts blood away from your your stomach and your intestines when you're trying to do something physical. That's with exertional activities. But on a boat, you may or may not have quite the same physiologic processes, meaning you still have got plenty of uh, blood flow to your intestines and your gut. So you can eat things that have a little bit higher, higher, um, a protein and fat in it, and you know, you're not going to throw up eating something on a boat that you would throw up on a run. Maybe. I maybe don't know.
1: <laughs> I've seen a lot of people throw up on a
0: boat. <laughs> maybe that's the next maybe, thing we we'll are talking maybe, about. Maybe not for that reason, but, <laughs> but maybe, for, yeah, but you, know, you understand what I'm saying? If I said eat a steak and go for a, uh, go for a jog, you, most people would either not do it or they get a real sick stomach. So. Right.
1: All right. So, the third most popular, I don't know if it's an injury, let's say it's a condition, seasickness. Yes, there are a lot of urban myths. You know, uh, there are medications, <clears throat> there are wives' tales that you know something will, will prevent it. You've got the bracelets, you've got Dramamine, you've got Bonine, you've got um, all of these different things. My experience is is that when someone gets seasick, it's pretty much too late.
0: Uh, that's probably Well, it's, it takes a long time to recover from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and are you, right.
1: is it possible to recover on a boat, on sure. a rocking boat, you can recover from yeah. the seasickness? Absolutely.
0: I, I uh, love to fish. I get seasick. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it's, if it's more than three to five foot waves and I'm looking down, I'll get seasick uh, pretty easily, actually. And so let's talk about seasickness. So the, the reason that some people get seasick or the, the, uh, the background information on this is you have multiple senses of balance. So the first one is our eyes. So you see what's up and down and moving. You know, just when you drive a car, you know what's, what's moving around you. But you also have your brainstem in the back of your brain and your semicircular canals. So when you're awake and looking and those things are all moving to the same motion, everything is fine. But let's, let's picture being inside a ship where you're looking at a wall and a floor that's stable, but you're actually moving. Mm-hmm. So now your semicircular canals and your brainstem, now some of your senses say, hey, we're moving, but your eyes say you're not. And then you get those mixed signals, mm. and that's what creates the, the issue. Um, some people are more prone to it than others. It's very interesting doing some research for this podcast. One, one of the predictive factors for getting seasick is if you think you're going to get seasick. Yeah.
1: So, <laughs> oh, I believe that so much.
0: <laughs> so if you say, I'm going to get seasick, you're probably going to get seasick. Right. If you've been seasick before and say, I'm not going to get seasick, um, there may be some, there may be some uh, truth to that you, you have a reduced chance of that. So.
1: I mean, you hear a lot of captains say it's all in your head. Like and and then you hear a lot of people say, "I'm fine and I will not get seasick if I stay busy." So they're the client, but they want to rig the baits and they want to they want to be doing whatever work they want to you know scrub the deck. They want to do whatever they can because if they stay busy or if they're driving the boat, you rarely see someone that's driving the boat get seasick because he's or or they are doing something with their hands. They're looking. They're they're looking all around. They're paying attention to other things. They're not just sitting there dwelling on ooh. I don't feel so good, right. right? But staying busy seems to be a big thing. And also the fact that I just know on certain boats, like if it gets to over a, a size 36 yellowfin or 42 or something like that, I'm very comfortable with the way those boats move. I've got a lot of experience in those boats. I'm not going to get seasick on those boats. I've been out in really bad stuff and I thought I was going to get seasick, but I'm not. If I get on a boat that I'm not familiar with, say a 70-foot sport fish, mm. which I haven't spent a lot of time on. That's a boat I could get sick on. Sure.
0: Well, um, one thing you said was if you're driving the boat, so keeping your head up, looking at the horizon, uh, because even – and they even say if you look at a focus on a point that's really far away that's not moving like a lighthouse mm-hmm. or the beach, even though you think it's not moving, it's still moving a little bit, so it's kind of resetting that. Um, when you look down, and this is, this is where I get in trouble, is I'll be in the back of the boat, someone else is driving, I'll be preparing baits, and then all of a sudden, you know, oh, my hands feel tingly, oh, I feel dizzy, and then, you know, it's over for, mm-hmm. for a couple hours. Some people said jumping in the water uh, works, and there's, there's some evidence that may actually work because it puts all the senses back together again. Mm-hmm. So, your eyes, your whole body is moving with the sea.
1: Yeah, and you can see that with it. Like, I, I've, I've had a few people get sick on the skiff or the bay boat, and there's a beach nearby, and you just pull up to the beach and let them get out and walk for two minutes, yeah. and they're fine. Like every, like what you're saying is I've seen it happen. It just resets and it doesn't take very long. Or you see somebody after a full day of being sick, they step onto the dock and they're like, wow, I feel fine now. Yeah. But that's that's kind of a weird thing because what you just said is basically goes to the typical advice. Don't go on, don't go below deck. If you got to go to the bathroom, do it up here and stare at the horizon. Right. And um, and everything will probably be fine.
0: I mean, I've told people to jump in the water before, but they're like, no, you know, you catch a shark and then five minutes later, somebody sees, it, like, hey, get in the water. And they're like, no way, that's mm-hmm. not going to happen. And, uh, prevention is also a big key of this. So, you mentioned there's patches, there's medications, and the wristbands. Some of those help to kind of reset the autonom- your autonomic system. Essentially, it's the involuntary senses uh, of the body or decreases the um, sensory input from those. Staying hydrated, being rested, um, all those things help reduce it. If you... You know, if, you, if you're really prone to being seasick, the answer is probably not to, you know, be sleep deprived and, you know, be dehydrated and go out there. You're probably going to get much, much, much worse. In fact, um, I was just speaking with my uncle and we mentioned this earlier that um, he said, you know, years ago, I think it was probably in the 70s or 80s, he worked overnight as an ER doctor and, you know, in the morning they said, hey, let's go fishing in Lake Michigan. And so they, you know, piled in the car, three guys, and, you know, he said they had a, you know. They had a cigar and they may have had a beer. And he said, they got in the boat and the boat's bobbing. And he said, worst seasickness he's ever had. So it's probably not the recipe for <laughs> to prevent Right. That. And so, that's, that
1: is a very common thing. You get to your fishing destination the first night, you're all excited. You have a few too many drinks, maybe a couple of cigars. I mean, personally, just for me, if I smoked a cigar, that would be enough to make me sick for a week. I wouldn't even need a rocking boat. That, God, just. Disgust me! I don't like cigars, and they make me sick. They really do. Um, the last time I had a cigar was at a wedding, and I just felt horrible. So yeah. I don't know if you don't smoke a lot of cigars, probably not a good thing to do before you go offshore.
0: It's probably not not a good idea to try your first cigar. Yeah, when you've gone on a destination yeah. trip, <laughs> and you you know that happens, right? You know, like hey, oh sure, you know, we're in Guatemala or you know Australia. Let's you know, and the next morning, like, why am I seasick? You know, well.
1: Right. So, what about the Self-induce. what about the the touching? You know, they have the bracelets that have mm-hmm. that have a pressure point just above your wrist. Um, is that Is there anything to that? Yeah,
0: there, some people say it helps with them. I, I'm not sure um, how much it is as a pressure point. Um, how much it, uh, you know helps regulate your autonomic system, or, or maybe some psychological. It's probably all three of those. It does work for some people. You know, if it works it's not going to be harmful. Mm-hmm. You know, go for yeah. it. It does
1: work for my son. But like he was so young, I was like, Here, if you put these on you won't get seasick And he's like, Okay, great and he put them on and you never got seasick again <laughs> and it's like I think that's in his head. But I
0: think that's uh that reminds me of uh, when I was in Boy Scouts, you know, you have a stitch in your side and they say, Oh, go find a stick and you know, throw it over your side and you know they forget <laughs> about the topic, right? You're like, Oh, I've gotta find a stick and all of a sudden your side doesn't hurt or you know, whatever else you doesn't bother. I never you heard with. that,
1: but um, that's that's interesting. Yeah. All of a sudden, you just look at something else. Okay. So, seasickness. One of the things that I have told a, a lot a lot of people, because I am probably more prone to the medication of seasickness mm-hmm. taking me down than I am for seasickness. Actually, seasickness has never taken me down, knock on wood. Um, but bonine and dramamine yeah. have knocked my socks off and uh, made me completely worthless on on a boat many times or an airplane so what i would suggest and this this was actually taught to me by a friend that you take take it the night before oh yes and so then you then it does make you very drowsy you sleep through the night you wake up and it's in your system so you go out there
0: i think even probably a better recommendation is that um you know you don't want to try something new You know, the first time before, you know, it's kind of like if you have a big trip, it's probably not the time to take your brand new boat. You want to take your boat ahead of time. Same with the medication. You know, if you're going to take a medication that may be sedating, the worst thing in the world is, you know, say, oh, I'm going to take this once I get there. And then you're zonked out and you can't enjoy it. So you might want to try it a week or two ahead of time. When you have a safe time, try that just to see how you feel. Mm -hmm. That way, when you go, you know, hey, I need to take this the night before. No, I can take it in the morning. I'm fine. So
1: What about ginger? So there's
0: actually evidence for ginger. Ginger ginger does work. there's uh let's talk about the mechanism of that it seems to help uh, reset the uh some of the serotonin receptors in the brain hmm. and um there is some definite definite anecdotal evidence that it works um i'm not going to lie that's i do i do take ginger gum with me because i don't get seasick that often but if i start to feel a little dizzy i do chew it it may be a placebo <laughs>
1: Whatever. I, I mean, you got to have your own little.
0: I love the taste of it. So, yeah. you know.
1: <laughs> got to have your own little way to get out of it. So there could actually be something to that. I always like to eat sushi the night before we go offshore and uh, load up on the ginger. Absolutely. Ginger. Oh, That's really great.
0: And one other thing about seasickness, it seems to be the slow motion of this. Uh, the slow moving motion is what gets people. So there are people that go on a roller coaster like, hey, I'm fine, you know, because it's very rapid motion. And then you get on a boat and it's this real slow bobbing motion. Hmm. And so, um, like, I have, a, I have a friend that was a helicopter pilot in the military. I'm like, hey, let's go fishing. He's like, I get seasick. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, you, you flow his health, you know. And he's like, and so I didn't get it at first. But then I, when you think about it, it's just a different it's a different motion. You know, when you're doing those type of things, uh, roller coaster, something where um, either you're either in control or if you can see everything, you're much less likely to get it. Like, people that get cars, some people get seasick in a car. They call it car sickness. Mm-hmm. Way less likely to get that if they're in control if they're driving the car, right. so right, same thing with the
1: boat. yeah, so. okay, cool, well good good things on that all right, so one of my um my major phobias that I have is getting hit in the eye with anything, mm-hmm. especially like when I'm walking with an umbrella, my wife has an umbrella, <laughs> she always has an umbrella I don't like umbrellas I'd rather just be show up to wherever we're going like a drenched rat uh, because I'm terrified of these little metal things oh, yeah. that are right at eye level right there. So I don't want to get hit in the eye with, a, with an umbrella. I don't want to get hit in the eye with a fishing rod. I don't want to get hit in the eye with a flying fly or a jig. So over the years, I've become incredibly careful. I only wear plastic lenses, never glass lenses. I hope that the if I have like safety glass type glasses, that's even better. And then I insist that everyone in the boat is wearing sunglasses all the time. And this came from when I was teaching my kids how to fish because, man, they don't understand what's going on. And they're excited about having a, a, a fish on. And big brother's still trying to catch one. Sure. And little brother turns like this to show something. And the, hook, and the fishing rod goes right into the, it's right at eye level, mm-hmm. right? So I made them. They could not fish without sunglasses. I don't care if it was dark outside. We had to have some advice. Now, if you're, especially like if you're learning how to fly fish, the thing's coming right by your head all the time. I got hit in the glasses so many times as a fly fishing guide. Okay, so I'm already terrified of that. I don't want that to happen. But if someone got hit in the eye with a fish (laughs) hook, now let's talk about different types of fish hooks. It could be a size 28 Griffith gnat, or it could be, you know, uh, a jig, somebody's, somebody's landing a tarpon with a jig and the thing comes back, it pops out of the tarpon's mouth and comes back and hits them right in the eye. Mm-hmm. Or it hits their glass lenses and it shatters in their eye. Mm-hmm. Okay. What am I going to do about that on a boat? So the thing about eye injuries is, is
0: um, again, back to prevention. Um, you know, the glasses protect you from projectiles. they actually prevent you from getting UV light that can actually burn your, um, your uh, cornea as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you want to wear those all the time, just like you say, for for prevention. A lot of eye injuries are almost permanent. I mean, we have great ophthalmologists that can take care of you, but there's a lot of eye injuries that happen that are very, very difficult to repair. Um, So, and and unfortunately, we see this where somebody gets hit with, just like like you say, a a fishing rod tip or a surfboard, um, and they end up losing their eye because Mm -hmm. it's done so much damage to the eye. Um, If you have... Almost any damage to the eye where you can't see, you need to go right to the emergency department, the closest emergency department. You don't want to try to take a hook out of the eye. Um, you, know, if you, you want to protect the eye. You want to cover it with something. And that may be um, a sock and a wrap or something just to kind of protect the eye and keep it moist so you can get there.
1: I always heard like some sort of a cup or something that you yep. could put over it and tape, tape around.
0: That works. Even Honestly, even another pair of sunglasses works. So, you know, if you shatter that lens, you can put another, another pair of sunglasses on. You want to protect the eye because, you know, if you close one eye and you get sunlight in another eye and it's, it's getting bright and dark, both eyes are moving at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, you can, so, you want to help protect the that causes pain in the injured right, eye. Right, right, right. Anytime you get something impaled in the eye, you know, you want to go to the hospital right okay, away. Okay, so
1: let's just say that's a, that's a fish hook and the mm-hmm. leader's still attached.
0: You cut, cut the leader off and go. Cut I mean, the
1: leader off mm-hmm straight to the hospital if you had a cup or something or another pair of yeah, sunglasses. Something put to protect it, on. it, correct. But obviously you don't want to do any further damage. So you're you, you almost want no light to come in. So it's almost like a blindfolded situation where you're you're covering both eyes, right? So that right. no more damage is so happening straight to the emergency room. Right? Yes. Yeah. Or or call.
0: Well I mean if you have an ophthalmologist if you have an ophthalmologist that you know that's great. But uh, the big issue is a lot of these are at resorts or you know destinations. Mm-hmm. You know if you're in if you're in Miami or the Keys or somewhere like that, you, you need to go to the nearest facility to be evaluated. Sometimes it ends up being just a scratch. You know, if you get a fishing rod that hits you in the eye, sometimes it's just a scratch um, that you have or a small little cut. But if, if you actually rupture your globe, the front of your eye, you know, that, that needs immediate attention, immediate surgery. Um, you can also dis- dislocate your lens. You can attach your retina. A lot of common eye injuries, and, and these can be really bad. And uh, what people don't realize is even preparing to go fishing. Um, we see people that get bungee cords that hit him in the eye. Hmm. So imagine yes. if a bungee cord with that with that metal. Someone that I'm actually I actually used to be friends with, he actually lost an eye because of that. So the bungee cord uh came across top of a rack and hit him right in the eye, detaches retina. Done.
1: So wear your sunglasses so, yeah, when you're getting ready you to.
0: Be very, very careful, protect your eyes, yeah. Wow.
1: Well, that would be a that would be a bad way to go. Uh bad way to lose your eye. All right. So one of the things that I mentioned had happened to one of my customers, he had a heart attack on the boat. Let's talk about that. How would you know someone's having a heart attack? And what would you do about it? So, you know, we see to talk about the common symptoms. You know, I've got chest pain.
0: It goes down my left arm. Even if coming up to the boat, if if you know somebody is normally a pretty physical person or, you know, they have no problem doing their normal daily activities. And all of a sudden they can't make it to your boat because they like, well, oh, I'm really short of breath. I can't make it here today. That's a warning sign just in and of itself. And, you know, people don't, don't want to ignore those symptoms. But if you're getting shorter breaths, walking, you didn't ha- used to have that. You're getting chest pain. goes down your left arm. Why left? It, well, so the nerves from the left arm and the, the heart, they both go to the spinal cord right, right around the same okay. place. And essentially it's like taking two uncoded wires and wrapping them around each other. You get mixed signals there. So it's not because you have a problem in your left arm. It's just you have that perceived
1: pain. But it, you wouldn't, you, somebody wouldn't be like, my right arm's killing me.
0: Well, you can. You can get radiation in the right arm. You could. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's
1: not just if you're in your right. Oh, you're fine. Yeah. The guy well, said it was your left.
0: You know, if, if your right arm hurts, and <laughs> you know, if your right arm hurts and it hurts to touch it, it's probably not a heart attack. But right. you know, if you're having all these vague symptoms, like yeah, I'm really short of breath today. I'm really nauseous. I got this weird pain in my arm. That's probably a, a warning sign. Hey, maybe you should go get. How active out.
1: could someone be? Like. You know, they've never felt that before. But you're on your you're on a fishing trip that that you've been waiting for for a long time, and and they kind of feel that, and they might be winded, but they're not really saying anything. I mean, could they make it through the day like that?
0: I mean, there are people that that uh, make it for a while. The, the issue is if you're having you know like a what we call like a silent heart attack um, or like a partial blockage, it, it'll just it can do more damage over time. I mean, mm. nobody wants to go on vacation and be sick, right? there are other things that mimic heart attacks as well. Like you can have a blood clot in the lung and you can have chest pain and shortness of breath as well. So, you know, when you look at the, all, in all honesty, most people know when they're sick and they they don't want to admit it. So Mm -hmm. if you think you should go get checked out, you should probably go get checked out. You know, you need to be honest with yourself.
1: When people feel that for the first time, I think that they, like the experience that I had, we went out, I was in Big Pine Key, we went to the contents right away. and, And this is kind of, directly in the middle of Marathon and Key West, where the two hospitals are. Mm -hmm. We couldn't have been more in the middle. In fact, I looked on the GPS, and it was one mile further to Marathon than it was to Key West, almost exactly in the middle. Um, So we go out there, and right away, we're having shots at Permit. He throws a spinning rod over. He catches one. He brings it to the boat, and he's, like, you know, sweating. He's um, happy. He's been wanting to catch this fish all his life. We land it. I hand it to him. And he sits on the cooler and he goes, wow, I've wanted to do this for my whole life. Woo. And he kind of does one of those and he hands me back the fish and then he just sits there for a second and he goes, woo, man. And he just kept going, woo, man, I'm out of breath. Woo. And, and his buddy's like, are you okay? And he goes, man, I don't know. I'm just, I, I just can't, I can't get off this cooler. Mm-hmm. And he goes, he's having a heart attack. We need to go right now. And so, you know, go. Right. We're gone. And it was one mile further to Marathon than it was to Key West, but I didn't know anybody in Marathon. I knew, I mean, we knew doctors and everything mm-hmm. in Key West. That was where. So I just decided, we're just going to Key West and we're going to call the ambulance on the way because right. if we sit here and wait, right. They're going to have to come up here. We might as well meet in the middle. I right. didn't know if that was a smart thing to do. That's or a great what. idea.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's why, you know, we have radios. That's why people take, um, you know, satellite phones. And, you know, if you're even far, you know, if you're 100, 120 miles offshore, like some of these big sport fishes. that might be even time to call the Coast Guard because, you know, they're there, they're there to help us. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously you want to get, get somewhere as soon as you can. Probably doing that, you know, it probably wouldn't have been any faster to call the Coast Guard because what you don't want to do is you don't want to loiter somewhere. You want to be. Heading to the direction of the right. right place because you know if they get called off or they can't come meet you, you're still making your way towards the right location. So hmm. um, I think what you did was perfect actually for that situation.
1: Okay. Well, that's interesting, and it turns out that he was he was you know he got to the hospital. He they they confirmed yes that was a heart attack, but he got there in time and everything was fine. Now a stroke. so difference between a stroke and a heart attack.
0: Well, stroke essentially is a heart attack of the brain. So when you talk about a heart attack, it's lack of blood flow to your heart. Stroke is like a blood flow to your brain. Um, Most of the time, that's in the form of a blood clot in the brain. And then about a third of the time, it's because you have bleeding. If you have bleeding, you don't have blood flow to that part of the brain. So, you know, if somebody is there, they're not, they can't speak, you know, they can't get words out, you know, they have numbness in their face or their arm, that's a time to go to the hospital. And what we see is people that have these symptoms and then they resolve, and that's what people call mini-stroke. Um, the medical term is called a transient ischemic attack. And they say, well, I had a mini stroke or I had symptoms, but they went away, so I'm fine now. Not the case. So, you know, if you have those symptoms, you still need to go even if you get better because that's a warning sign. Mm. You know, same, similar to chest pain is a warning sign before the big heart attack. You know, if you have chest pain, you should get evaluated. If you have this symptom, you need to go right away. Um, so if you're on a boat, it's time to, you know, time to pull the lines up and go.
1: Okay. And would it be wise, like in my gym recently… Our latest investment was a uh, a, defib- a defibrillator, um, an automatic one that mm-hmm. talks to you. You, if someone has a problem, they go down. You unzip this thing, you pull out the patches. It speaks to you. Put them here. Put them here. Everybody, move away. Push this button first. Call nine one one before you mm-hmm. before you do that. Should um, fishing guides have a defibrillator on their boat?
0: That's an interesting topic. I don't know if that's actually been just. Dist- discussed as a um, healthcare policy, certainly it saved so many lives. Early CPR and uh, using an AED saved, saved countless lives. So we see people all the time, hey, somebody came and did, you know, bystander CPR and they use an AED. And and so that's been a tremendous help to so many people. I mean, you, you could you could probably go online right now and you could find 100 stories of people's lives that were saved, um, not just by paramedics or EMS or hospital, but just by bystanders doing CPR and AED. And I think the issue with that is it's cost, it's maintenance. I, I don't know how well those would do, you know, like on a a bay boat or somewhere where it's gonna.
1: Well, if you you know, you know, you know my my feeling is that it comes in a <laughs> zippered pouch. <laughs> if it lived in a in a waterproof pelican box or one of these things, and it was just in your boat all the time, you checked it monthly to make sure the batteries are working. It has a green light that flashes when it's when it's in good shape. I would think that you know, as you're. You know, most fishing guides I know, they don't fish with a lot of 20-year-olds. You know, it's like right. people get to an age that they have money, they have time, they want to do this, and you're fishing with kind of a little bit of an older clientele. Mm-hmm. And as you continue to do it, that clientele continues to get older and older. But the the one experience that I had with, with a guy having a heart attack, it, it really scared me. And these AEDs weren't available at the mm-hmm. time. Certainly, maybe they were, and they were just huge costs. But now you can get one for $1,000.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I think any fishing guide that would have one of those would be an amazing added tool uh, to the chest. And the other thing about uh, CPR is, uh, you know, let's go back to the late 90s when I became an EMT. Well, everybody's doing mouth-to-mouth and chest compressions. Mm-hmm. And so there are people that would see people that were, you know, unconscious. like, I'm not— I'm not going to make out with that person. I'm not going to give that person mouth-to-mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, just doing chest-only CPR is actually a proven benefit because you have oxygen already in your bloodstream for several minutes. Like, you can hold your breath for several minutes. Mm-hmm. So, even if somebody, you know, goes down, even if you're not doing mouth-to-mouth, just doing that chest-only CPR and then an AD is a tremendous benefit. saves mm-hmm. so many people.
1: So, what about certain states are different and a lot of times you have to have first aid and CPR certification to get your license. Mm-hmm. But, and, and then you have to have it to renew your license. But a lot of times you're not required to renew that every year. How important is it, do you think, that people have basic CPR instruction, if they're going to be any sort of a guide at all, a tour guide of any kind?
0: I think almost any service industry where you're going to be you know taking care of helping other people. I personally would want to have that, that type of knowledge and skill set. Um, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, just walking down the street, something going to happen like that. And so... You know, certainly, you know, if your CPR cards expired and somebody needs CPR, <laughs> you know, you can still do that. Right. It's not, you know, it's not a matter of if you have to get your credentials out or card. But but I think that the more often you, you do that and the more often you train, the better you're going to be. Um, you know, repetition and training is what what um, makes you react when that something, when an emergency happens. If you took a CPR course 20 years ago and something happens, you're probably gonna be much less likely to be able to react on a dime and go do that than mm-hmm. if, hey, every year for the last 20 years I've gone and done this and I know how to... You know how to do that. I mean, if you take care of kids, you have, you know, friends over, you know, just know how to do basic first aid and CPR, just take care of your family and friends. Uh, I think it would be motivation to do that. Mm-hmm. So
1: Now, another thing that I don't know what was on here, but uh, choking. Mm-hmm. One time I had to do the Heimlich Maneuver at El Cibonet in Key West, and I was in the worst position of anyone in the restaurant to actually get out. I was in the far corner of the restaurant, pinned in. By everyone. And all of a sudden, this person stands up and says, does anyone know CPR? And my wife looks at me and goes, you do. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, but look where I am. I can't get there. And so I'm waiting for anyone to do anything. And no one did. Not one person in the whole wow. restaurant did a single thing. And this person is standing up, choking, mm-hmm. faces turning blue. And so I'm like, oh, okay, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Finally, just get out and go over there and give the Heimlich Maneuver, and it's the only time I've ever had to do that, but I did have to do it once. And it came from the CPR first aid class. There you go. Right? Knowing, knowing how to do that, mm-hmm. and, and you never know when you're going to have to use that. But let's just say on a boat, you got to give the, uh, the Heimlich Maneuver mm-hmm. somebody. They go on their. They got their bacon, egg, and cheese. They're super excited. They just caught their first bonefish and they wolf down a giant bite. Oh, right, and it's stuck. What are you gonna do?
0: Well, so it's the same same as if you're on shore. Actually, as far as the Heimlich. The, the the added difficulty there is the boat's moving. You know, or could be moving depending on the ocean or the seas. So, you know, it's the same. You know, go, go right behind them. You pull up through their mid abdomen up to where their sternum is at, and you want to do as hard as you can, as many times as you can, and, until really, something comes up, right? The answer is you don't stop until you fix it. You know that's what so, that's
1: what I went through my head. I remembered my CPR instructor saying, "When you if you ever have to do this, you let them have it. Like don't you know? I mean, this is life or death. You got to let them have it. So I let her have it. The <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so only, only time they uh, they they thanked you for breaking somebody's rib. I don't know. I don't think I broke any ribs, but I I do remember I I remembered thinking this is it. You got to really you got to really let her have it. And she was kind of a, about 115 pound woman. And I was like, well, here we go. Yeah, there you go. It was back to high school wrestling. And I thought I was, (laughs) I gave it everything I had. Anyway, it worked. Okay. So now, eye injuries, head injuries. What about head injuries? Somebody falls, somebody, boats are slippery. You're on a sport fish. Somebody falls off the upper deck, lands on, lands uh, in, the, in the cockpit, head injury.
0: This has evolved a lot in the last 15 years in emergency medicine. It used to be, hey, you've got a CAT scanner, let's CAT scan everybody. But the reality is, you know, a, a large majority of head injuries don't require anything really except time to resolve. People are at increased risk of, of uh, brain injuries, you know, for falling from heights, two or three times your body height um, uh, is much more dangerous if you're taking any blood thinners, as we get older, so as we get older, your skull stays the same size, but your brain actually shrinks. So there's a free space there for the brain to follow mm. back and forth. Didn't know that. Yeah. Mm. So
1: that, that answers tons of questions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I may have a little extra free space yeah. now. So.
1: <laughs> no, I do. I know I do. <clears throat>
0: um, but, uh, and then, you know, sort of taking, taking blood thinners um, puts you at increased risk. So, you know, somebody's walking and they fall, typically walking from a standing height. Unless it's a really dangerous mechanism, like hey, this person got clipped by a forklift and you know thrown down very fast, most of those head injuries are actually okay. You know, to put some ice on it. And if you have a big cut, you need to go get get evaluated. But if you say, "Oh, I feel fine," you're probably fine. If if you, like you say, you fall off the top of a sport sport fish and you know, you land on uh, land on the um, deck or you land on a dock you have a big open cut that's probably time to go get seen yeah,
1: yeah but what about like the so what you're saying is like if if you feel fine you're probably you're probably okay you know for the moment anyway you just landed a a, a bunch of mahi there's blood all over the deck somebody walks slips and you know it's like a whiplash kind of thing where their head mm-hmm. whacks the back of the thing and and you know for a while they're kind of sitting kind of gathering themselves and then they're like you know, I, I I think I'm okay. Okay. Yeah. So the decision is we're 120 miles offshore. Right. Do we go in now because this guy hurt his head or is he really okay if he goes and sits in the salon in the air conditioning for a while? Is he okay or do we need to go back to the dock?
0: I think some of that depends on the actual mechanism and then a little bit of time. So, you know, if you pass out, you probably should be go back. Mm. If you have a seizure when, after you fall, you should probably go back. If you say, hey, I feel fine, but, you know, three hours later, you're getting a worsening headache, you're getting confusion, you should probably head back. You know, if you fall more than three times your body height, and you're not, like, perfectly okay, you should, you know, you should probably go back. I mean, we look at all these concussion, you know, concussion rules now. There's football players that, you know, get whacked in the head, and they're fine, or hockey players, or all these other contact sports. And, you know, the reality is most of these guys are okay, but if somebody's unconscious for a prolonged period of time, extreme nausea, my headache's getting worse. You know, hey, I'm on you know a blood thinner for my heart condition, and boy, my head's really pounding, and I feel dizzy. It's probably time to go back. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this is common sense from the person, like you know, be honest with me. How do you feel? Th- that's so probably go, when you go
1: back. Then that's directly to the emergency room. Well, you should get if you're feeling that badly.
0: You should get evaluated by by some some physician uh, most likely because there are there are physical exam findings, and you know, talking to the person, and also time. So if it took you an hour to get back and you know, you felt really bad, now you feel a lot better, you, you might be okay, but you should probably get, get looked at. And, and a lot of these people end up actually getting a scan. Like if it's say, hey, I fell 15 feet, and you hit your head, they're probably going to get a, you know, cats going to make sure they, a, they don't have a skull fracture or bleeding inside the brain. Um, and then what can also happen is you can be okay now, but as you get, as, like we said, as you get older your brain shrinks, you can get delayed bleeding. Mm-hmm. So we see people that have a head injury, they're fine. Two weeks later, they say, man, I feel seasick. I haven't been on a boat. And so they, they didn't have a bleed then they have a delayed bleed because the brain's kind of bruised and you kind of rest and it slowly leaks out. And, and so it's not detected initially, but later it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty wild. So, uh, you know, I think the big issue with that is you have to be honest with yourself. How do you feel? Um, you know, if, if you lose consciousness, have a seizure, nausea, vomiting, you should probably go get checked out. You know, most kids that fall from a standing height, you know, most of us have children and, um, you know, if they fall from a standing position, most of the time they're okay. They don't they don't always need to go get checked out. But if they're not acting right, they're sleep a lot, they want to drink, then that's probably the time to at least go get evaluated. Doesn't mean they have to have a, a scan or testing, but they should right. be evaluated by some type of medical professional just to just okay. to get a baseline. So all right. And uh, um, no, the last rule for kids is mom knows best. <laughs>
1: so <laughs> that's true. If mom says he's not acting right, yeah, he's not then, acting
0: right. If mom says I want to take him to the ER, you should take your kid to the ER. Yeah. So.
1: I mean, that's, that's amazing. The mom do, do no best. They, they absolutely do. And there've been many times where I'm like, I don't think it's anything. And we go because she says, and it turns out, oh, well, uh, what you thought was nothing is a double ear infection. <laughs> and you're like, oh, well, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Kids <laughs> always listen to your mother. Okay. So now one of the other things we have on here, uh, jellyfish stings, not just jellyfish, but Portuguese man o' war. Uh, You could, Portuguese man o' war sometimes can happen when you're fishing through Portuguese man o' war and you sometimes get the tentacles on the line. You can get stung a little bit like that. But a Portuguese man o' war is an interesting thing because if you really look at them, they have tentacles that are as long as a fly rod and they extend Mm -hmm. way, way back. So you're swimming and you're like, oh, there's one over there. And you think you're real clear. You're 12 feet away from it. It might still get you, right? So mm-hmm. you're swimming through. You think you've taken the uptide side. Turns out you're you're not. Or there's one 12 or 15 feet over that way. It can get you. You mm-hmm. can you can start getting wrapped up in it. That's when that's when it goes really bad. Um, so what do you do if you get stung by a jellyfish or a Portuguese man of war?
0: So this is kind of split up into really two regions. Um, it's Hawaii and Australia and then everywhere else in the world. Uh, and uh, after, you know, doing a lot of research on Australia, I'm like, whoa, like, you know, even the jellyfish there can, can, mm-hmm. can really get the you little The
1: little one that's almost, that's almost invisible, the little box jellyfish. Yeah, the box jellyfish,
0: um, there's actually fatalities from the box yeah. jellyfish. So, you know, we see a lot of remedies like, oh, let me pee on my kid's leg, etc. So, you know, the first thing is you want to get out of the water. I mean, you want to get out of wherever that's at as soon as possible. And then really, it comes comes down to, like, let's talk about the United States. It comes down to really two options. You have hot water or not hot water. So you know, if you're at the beach, you probably don't have hot water. If you're on a boat, unless you have a really nice big boat, you probably don't have hot water. But if you're at a beach house or a condo, then you may have access to hot water. So if you have hot water, the best answer is to get all the assist, all the tentacles off you. Rinse it with salt water. You want to avoid fresh water because it actually promotes the release of these nematocysts that sting you. Yeah, so you want to just get the tentacles off. So pull them off and then rinse yourself off with salt water. And then you want to go immerse yourself in hot water, like 104 to 110 degrees. And that's supposed to, that's thought to deactivate the uh, cysts and be the best pain relief.
1: I did hear about someone that that thought enough about it and and knew that, and they were using the water that was coming out of the, the engine. You know, yeah. it's a water-cooled engine, so the water you have, you have that, and that's they a great would put idea. their they would put their feet under that, and they would gotten burned, and they said, you know, I don't know if it's 104, but it's pretty pretty right, hot, right. and uh, that that seemed to help. So there is one source of it's probably hot 104. Water. It's pretty hot. I engine's mean, pretty yeah. hot. You know, yeah. the
0: engines run above 200 degrees. So that's probably that's a great idea. I didn't even think of that actually. And then if and then if you don't have access to that, you want to you know pull the you want to pull the tentacles off, rinse it with salt water, and then. Really kind of a vinegar spray is supposed to thought to uh, maybe deactivate some of these. I mean, if you if you go on Google and look at a bunch of articles regarding vinegar, you can find some to say, well, this species, it may or may not make it better or this species, you know, plus or minus. But the general thinking is, is that vinegar and ice pack, um, once you remove those, is probably the best things to do. Baking soda is probably, a, um, you know, a close third to that. Um. There's not really what about peeing on them? No. So, Don't? So,
1: no. You're not supposed to pee on them? So, really?
0: So there's actually an article to pee or not pee, <laughs> um, which I read about this. So urine has actually not been uh, proven to, to be of any benefit. Meat tenderizer, I um, remember when I was a kid. Yes. When I was a kid, I guess. I remember people yeah. used to
1: carry that around, Adolph's meat tenderizer. Yeah.
0: So, you know, save that for the steaks later the night, but... That doesn't do anything. It's not really... So the thought between for uh, meat tenderizers, it may break down uh, some of the... Um, but there's not really great evidence for that. Um, the urine, there there have been some uh, combination mixtures where it's got vinegar, baking soda, urea, and some other things in it, and, and those tend to make people feel better. And that's really the the goal here is to make yourself feel better from that.
1: So, so, but um, so no pee. It reminds me of the office episode where he burned his foot, and he's he's like. Yeah, I've burned my foot. It hurts so bad. I've even peed on it, and it didn't make it any better. It's like sometimes these wives' tales get moved around to uh, to different injuries, like a, a right. any any foot injury. Michael Scott thought you're supposed to pee on it, but that's for uh, athlete's foot. I mean, maybe that work like, for athlete's foot.
0: No, I don't. I don't think peeing on anybody is really works for anything. I, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say we store uh, human urine in the UR uh, ER for any conditions. So okay, that's maybe fair, it's, it's fair good, enough. It's a good token, I guess, of uh, friendship, though. I mean, maybe hypothermia. Hey, if you're, if you're cold, I can <laughs> uh, Sure that. I, I can't think of anywhere I'd recommend, uh, recommend that. So
1: <laughs> Okay, so puncture wounds are something that happens all the time. <clears throat> you get uh, puncture wounds from fish spines. You get puncture wounds from fish hooks, puncture wounds from... I don't know, any, anything else? We've talked about if it was in the eye. What if it's somewhere else?
0: So, so puncture wounds, um, very, very common. I mean, I've been making a wire for kingfish mm-hmm. or for sharks, and, you know, it's real thin. just pokes you right in the thumb. It really hurts a lot. But I've also have friends that have had fish spines, you know, in their hand. Like one of my friends had a fish spine in his hand. Mm-hmm. He was in the Bahamas. He said, I think I got it out. But, you know, four or five days later, his hand is twice the size of yes. the other hand. And, you know, and he calls me. He said, Hey, do you think I should go to the ER? I'm like, well, what do you think you should do? He's like, well, I'm driving there right now. I'm like, that's probably a good idea, Mm -hmm. you know? And he had had a fish spine still stuck in his hand. So he'd have surgery, take it out, you know? So, um, fish or, uh, uh, puncture wounds are very, very, very painful. Uh, the big key with that is, do you think you got it all out and is it getting better? So, you know, you get, get a puncture wound the first day, it's going to hurt like the Dickens. You put some ice on it, take some Motrin, take some Tylenol. If on the second, third, fourth day, it's worse, not better, you probably have an infection or you got a retained product in there. And so the only way to get that out is typically with surgery. Um, right. I mean, you hear people say, using drawing salve to get things out. And that may work. And, there, you know, there, there are people that have been fine with that. But the, the reality is you want to get that out of your body as soon mm-hmm. as possible. I mean, that happened with me with a palm frond, just a little piece of palm frond in my hand. I thought I'd be fine, you know. And a week later, my hand's all swollen off. Right. So, right. Uh, but it can be a yeah, I I got a, a, a mutton
1: snapper spine in my thumb. And um, it was not a big mutton snapper. It was just, in fact, it was just big enough. It was a very small one, but it was just big enough to where I could get it like a bluegill, like mm-hmm. hold it like this. And it flipped and, and it went in there and it burned immediately. And I've got, I got thousands of fish spines in my hand. But this one, for whatever reason, burned mm-hmm. immediately, like like a hot nail going in. And my hand, by the end of the day, was already swollen and I was starting to lose mobility in the yeah. hand. And so I called my friend that was a a spinal surgeon in Fort Lauderdale, and he's like, dude, that is not good. Like, can you, you you're not moving your hand like right. like like you should be. You need to get up here right now. And I was like, Well, can I get up there in the morning? I got trips tomorrow. And he's like, he's like, Look, I got a hand specialist, cancel your trips and you need to come up here. That is a bad deal. And by the next morning, my hand was in locked in a position, kind of like a semi mm-hmm. fist. Mm-hmm and I had to pry it open. And I get up there and he wanted to cut my thumb this way, cut it here and cut it on the backside, irrigate it, get everything out. And he was saying that he thought that it was like a MRSA kind of Mm -hmm. staph infection and that could go straight to your heart and you needed to do something about it immediately. And I was like, well, Is there anything we could do otherwise? And he suggested something like a Cipro or Mm -hmm. something, uh, a heavy-duty antibiotic. Mm -hmm. We'll try that. But if tomorrow you don't see a a noticeable improvement, Mm -hmm. you need to be back up here because this could go straight to your heart. How'd it go? The Cipro worked. Oh, that's great. Luckily, so I didn't have to have my hand opened up in three different places.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, um, so what you're talking about is when you get a hand infection, you have all these tendons. It's like pulleys in your hand. And when you get the swelling, it passively flexes the mm-hmm. hand. And so when you you know when you have a finger that's twice the size of the other finger, your your fingers are bent without trying to bend them. That's a, that's a really big warning sign that you've got some type of infection here. And what happens? Is they they'll travel right up the tendon, and they go right up the arm. And so you know people have lost fingers or hands for those reasons, or the infections eat away eat away at some of the you know cartilage or the you know joints where you've got oh I've got chronic pain in my finger now or I can't bend this finger. From those injuries, so if your hand's passively flexed, um, it's twice the size of another finger, yeah, you should probably go get checked right away. They used to be very aggressive about surgery right away, like you're suggesting, and that's still the case in a lot of a lot of the uh, infections like that, but we are trying to do antibiotics for a day or two because we do know that some of these do re- just like you, they recover just with antibiotics yeah. but
1: and so there but there's different bacteria on on certain fish, I guess, and there's like a a, a fish handler's disease, yeah. I don't know if that's what this was or if it was just, if I just got unlucky or it was that particular fish had some bacteria on it that other fish didn't. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, that was fast acting and that was a burning immediately. And I've never experienced that before, since, or, or or after. But that was a weird thing. So, anyway, the fish handler's disease. What do you know about I'll say,
0: that? I'll say, there could have been what's called Vibrio as well. That's a very common bacteria in the salt water. I live in Florida and right you know, right now you hear about these there's been a couple of people unfortunately that have died from this. We hear the flesh eating bacteria. Yes. And so it just just like your hand, it just rapidly spreads and unfortunately antibiotics are not enough for that. They actually have to essentially go cut off the body part or cut out all that tissue and get ahead of that get ahead of where that infection is. And what happens is when you have a really bad infection that spreads that much, it puts the same amount of stress on your body as if you're running a marathon or you're doing some, some type of ultra-endurance event. But some people don't have, aren't conditioned for that. So, you know, if you're told, an eight, you know, somebody that's elderly or not in shape, you know, to go do one of these things, they would have a real hard time with it, where their body has the same type of stressors to those type of infections. Wow. So
1: Well, I don't, I don't handle fish that way anymore either. If I'm going to, I wear a glove. If I, you know, for catching a whole bunch of something like snappers, small snappers, or something like that, I'll put a glove on. But even then, I, I like pull the pull the line up and then just pinch the with my forearm. I pinch it, the fish between my forearm and my hip, and get the get get the hook out like this because now all the spines are in places that I'm not going to get hit Mm -hmm. and then just let them go like that. And I don't hold them like that anymore. Like there's no reason to hold it. It's going to flip and you're going to get a spine in there. But anyway, that was one of the changes that I made and I haven't had any other problems with it.
0: I think somebody said once there's a safe way to handle every fish.
1: Yes, I did. (laughs) I I mean, I think that that every fish has a way that, that lends itself to some sort of handling. Yeah. Um, and some of them are a gaff. Sure, I mean, but, think, <laughs> you know. Well, think about a catfish. You know, if you you know, even a catfish, you know, you can get poked
0: with the spines. if You don't know right. how to handle that. But,
1: right, exactly. You know, and and the catfish has some nasty, yeah, slime on it. I don't know if that is. It, it looks to me like that would be the recipe for a bad infection to get hit with that, because other fish. But but then again, this mutton snapper was beautiful, and there was no. No indication whatsoever that this one was any different than any other one, and it just went in. It actually went right into the um, to the joint, mm-hmm. right between my my thumbprint and the next, you know, segment of your thumb. And I don't know if that's why it hurt. So, what if uh, what if you're out there and you actually get your finger cut off? It's a good question. So we uh, we do
0: see amputations in the emergency department and variety of ways that people you know people say, "Oh, I brought it in milk." You know, people some people soak it in uh you know, a brine bath with your fish, not a good idea. <laughs> you want to keep, you want to, well, first of all, you want to take care of the rest of your body. So, you know, you have an amputation, you want to make sure you control the bleeding. Um, you know, take care of yourself first. I mean, certainly you want to bring that part with you if you can. Some parts are reattachable, some parts are not. It depends on the injury, where it's at. Um, but you want to bring that with you. So you want to keep that part um, moist and cool. So, um, essentially, uh, you know, a good rule of thumb is if you have clean water, sterile water, which most people don't have sterile water, but you know, wrap it in something that's moist, put it in a Ziploc bag and then put it on top of some ice. Mm-hmm. You don't want to freeze it. That would be bad, right? So n- no part of your body is meant to be frozen. But when you, when you, uh, keep it cool, it reduces, um, all the cells in there. It slows down their metabolism. So it gives you a better chance of being able to reattach it once you get to the hospital. So. That's probably a, a time you should definitely turn around. That's not a time to st- right. <laughs> stay Stay yeah. out there.
1: No, uh, even no matter how tough you are, you might want to come back then if you lose your finger. I mean, All right, so what, in if, the way. what if you step on a stingray and get hit with, with a barb? Stingrays,
0: um, that's, that's pretty common. Uh, we go to the west coast of Florida around Clearwater. There seem to be some of those there, but I think along, a lot of, around a lot of beach areas. You want to try to pull the stinger out. Hot water, again, it deactivates the same type Hmm. of pneumatocyst. So, there's a higher instance of foreign bodies with those. And so, kind of the same rule of thumb, you know, you you feel like something's in there, you're getting pain, you know, you should probably go get evaluated. Sometimes x-rays will see those. Sometimes it takes an ultrasound. Hmm. Not everything shows up on an x-ray. So, ultrasound is another tool we use to look for uh, foreign bodies that don't show up on x-rays. So Hmm.
1: Next thing you know, it'll be like Stranger Things when she has that little thumb thing stuck in her leg and it starts moving around. <laughs> uh, coral cuts. You're you're swimming, you're not supposed to touch the coral, but you're surfing or something and get washed into the coral. What are you supposed to do about this?
0: Well, you're supposed to, you should wash it off. Definitely, get, you know, get out of the water. They have very similar, what are called nematocysts. They have, uh, on the coral, there's, there's nematocysts very similar to jellyfish. And so you want to, you know, get out of the water, you know, soap and water, antibacterial soap. You can use Vinegar for the stinging of the nematocysts, it's kind of the same mechanism as jellyfish. You can put some topical antibiotic equipment on it. Um, some people get get almost like an allergic reaction. They get some itching to it. You can take some um, oral Benadryl or topical Benadryl oral or topical steroids for that. If it starts to get red, it starts to spread. They are a little bit higher prone to antibiotics. You know, not every cut needs antibiotics, mm-hmm. but certainly if it's starting to look bad or um, or you have some, you know, um, some people have illnesses that put them more prone to infections or take medications to control other medical issues. So, if you're taking medicines that either depress your immune system or um, or you just have a weak immune system for some other reason, you might be more prevalent to want to go get evaluated sooner or maybe get some antibiotics.
1: What about peeing on that guy? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I'm just I'm figuring <laughs> out that peeing on somebody is not good. Okay. So, there are a couple of things that could could uh cause some issues with um, stinging everything from you could get a wasp sting to sea urchins to our favorite the lionfish um, so let's talk about like a bee sting wasp sting hornet sting what what about tobacco that was always the thing. My dad would unroll a cigarette really put put some of the tobacco in his mouth put it put it on there and and that was supposed to be. That was supposed to be good. Did it work? I, well, I mean, you know, he said it was going to work, so it worked, right? And okay. to a kid, he's like, this will work. And so all of a sudden it doesn't hurt anymore. I don't know. Is that, does that work?
0: I uh, don't think that's a common medical practice okay. today. So, right. <laughs> you know, most people that, have, uh, that are allergic to bee stings or anaphylactic, they know that ahead of time. And they should be carrying an EpiPen with them. Um, another part of that is if you're anaphylactic to bees or wasps and you're going to be with other people or a fishing guide, you should probably tell them. You know that should be that should probably be a, a uh, common communication before the trip. Hey, do you have any medical illnesses I need to know about? You know, before the trip, and and same with the customer or, or whoever's hiring the guy. They should be saying, you know, they it's kind of a dual responsibility. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. both of them should be bringing up the conversation. You know, are you allergic to bees? Do you have diabetes? And if so, do do you have you know sugar you know glucose on you in case your sugar drops? Because you know if the fishing guy doesn't know this person. You're out for an hour, all of a sudden this person's unconscious. Uh, you know, the right answer, if you don't know what to do, is always to go back to the doc and get an ambulance. But it may be something you can also treat as you're going back. Or if it's something like low blood sugar, you can treat immediately right there and, and fix and solve the day. So, so for bee stings and wasps, um, the big thing to know ahead of time is, you know, are you anaphylactic? If they know that they should have an EpiPen with them. Most of them, once they get stung, they'll either self-administer it or you, you know, kind of help them. You put it in their hand and mm-hmm. put it in your thigh. Um and, and for reactions less than that, really Benadryl is is a primary answer and then some oral steroids or some topical steroids locally. That's the big answer for those type of issues. So, so.
1: with anaphylactic people like that, is there we have down bees, wasps, ants, stuff like that. But is there anything in the ocean that you would get stung by that would create an anaphylactic shock similar to a to a bee sting?
0: So there's very few people that are anaphylactic to jellyfish. Some of the some of the um what I've read, I've never been to Australia, so I apologize. Right. I'm not an extra. Everything
1: I, down there will kill you, I think. Yeah. Everything.
0: So I think that there's, there's a higher instance of, of, of anaphylactic reaction to uh, those type of uh, fish that are primarily in the Australian waters. Um, here in the U.S., we don't see a lot of anaphylaxis to jellyfish. So, um, I think it's primarily things, um, I guess, um, uh, some snake bites, but which could be in the water. But, but really, I think we're talking about really about bees, wasps, ants that get those localized reactions or the anaphylaxis, which essentially you go into shock where your body, all the blood vessels open up and then, you, you know, you can't get blood flow anywhere. And, and that's uh, essentially what shock is, is lack of, you know, oxygen and blood everywhere because mm. it just, everything dilates and, wow. and that's what happens. And so, so
1: that person would go unconscious? Yeah,
0: they could. So, you know, people say my throat's swelling up. I can't breathe. They start to, they still sound like they have asthma. Their face or body can turn red. They can pass out. It's a variety of reactions. Um, but the key to, key to that is if you use epinephrine, you, you need to go call 911, go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So. You know, you don't use epinephrine and then say, "Hey, it's time to stay out of here." That's so you can have
1: a similar kind of uh, reaction. Someone that doesn't eat a lot of seafood and, and a lot of people have a similar thing to peanut allergies yeah. and to um, shrimp yeah. and shellfish can can cause that. So imagine somebody from Ohio goes down to you know the Florida Keys and they're like, "Oh, when I want to eat some shrimp," and they don't eat shrimp very often, and they their throat starts closing. Right? Is that anaphylactic?
0: Yeah. Okay. It's typically, it's typically, so people say they're allergic to shellfish. And that's what that is. That's an anaphylactic reaction. Now, so
1: how bad would it have to be for you to go to the emergency room?
0: Well, if you can't breathe or you feel like your throat's swollen up, that's probably the you know time to do something. Right. If it's something they've never had before, that's probably time to go get go to a clinic or go the go to an urgent care mm-hmm. or go to the emergency department. If it's something that's like oh, I'm a little itchy because you know right. I get that way, you're probably okay. You can take some Benadryl. Most people know that. I mean, most most adults, it's not their first time to get exposed to new foods.
1: Okay, so that's and what about the lionfish? lionfish because that is uh that's something that you know the lionfish is a is an invasive species, it is a serious problem on on the uh on the reef, and so in order to try to remedy this, mm-hmm. they don't really have any predators, so right, right. people are spearfishing them, and one of the ways that that we might be able to control the population is to convince everybody that they're really good to eat. Mm -hmm. So people are going and spearfishing hundreds of them. It's actually... Kind of fun because there's no limit. You can get as many as you want and you can become a much, much, much better spear fisherman with a few days of lionfish practice because you can shoot as many as you want. Mm-hmm. And uh, But there is a trick to handling them. And they've come up with these PVC pipes that have kind of a, a door on the top where you put the thing in and pull it out and it pulls the lionfish off the spear. So the lionfish is dangerous because it has a particular fin on its body has poison in it, right, right. or bad, mm-hmm. bad stuff. So I've heard some bad stories about lionfish, but I don't know what what's up.
0: There have been some reported incidents of this being fatal, but it's super, super rare. Essentially, you get a really bad localized reaction. It, it can be anaphylaxis, but most people just get a it's like a bad bee sting, essentially you get a bad localized reaction. Um, again, to deactivate this hot water, 110 degrees, and then taking some Benadryl, taking some oral steroids if you have access to that. If it doesn't get better, you're feeling worse. You know, it's time to go get checked out. If your over-the-counter remedies don't hmm. don't work for that, hmm. uh, okay. No urine.
1: Yeah, don't pee on them either. Okay, okay. So what about I have a book here? Yeah, this is interesting. You wrote a whole thing about ciguatera poisoning. That's something that people probably don't understand. I under I've always heard that barracudas have ciguatera. Groupers sometimes have ciguatera. Tell tell me what ciguatera is.
0: So twypus is about 20% of fish-related food uh, food poisoning. It's such a reef fish. They're contaminated with this toxin. Um, you can't cook it out. You can't freeze it out. And you can't steam it out, says Stein, but you can't steam it out. You get nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. It happens typically uh, within like 6 to 30 hours. You can get uh, numbness, itching, metallic taste. It creates all these really, really wild symptoms. And the the treatment is really just treat your symptoms. If you have nausea, you take some nausea medicine. If you're having diarrhea, you take some diarrhea medicine. There's not a not no way to reverse it, but it's self-limiting. Uh, I think my wife actually had this a couple of years ago. She ate this and then I was like, boy, I feel really numb and tingly and mm. she felt really well. You know, she took some Benadryl because she just didn't feel well and the next morning she was fine actually. So really? but but it can create all these different um different sensations. Um, and the body, so it's it's a really really wild um, symptom. So again, this is like you know one fifth of all fish fish related food poisoning can cause this. I think what's more interesting is actually the scromboid fish poisoning, which yeah, we're, we're about, I don't, I
1: don't know what that is. We talked about
0: maybe talking about the proper way to store fish or handle fish. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, you know, will go out, they'll catch fish, and they'll leave it on the deck. They won't ice it right away. So essentially what happens is if fish are improperly stored or left in two warmer conditions, you can get this. It's called histamine fish poisoning. So essentially cause like a like a mild allergic reaction. You get the nausea, you get the vomiting, you get the flushing reaction, you get some burning, and, and you can get some, uh, again, vomiting and diarrhea. It feels like a very mild allergic reaction. You don't feel really well. The way you treat that is with Benadryl and some antacid medicine because those both work on the histamine uh, receptors. A fish will have to be out. For three hours in sixty-eight degree weather, which is not very warm, I mean it's very easy in Florida. You know, right. you catch a fish in the morning, you don't have ice, you leave it on the deck, take it home, play it, eat it. You can you can get this, so it's 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 uh, self limiting. Um, I don't haven't found any reported cases of any fatalities from this, but talk about an awful way to spend your day. Yeah. So it's not broken down by cooking, freezing, or refrigerating it. You know, some people say, well, it's on the deck. I'll just freeze it for a little bit. Well, it's too late. Once this happens. So, what happens is the fish go under undergo a bacterial overgrowth. It increases the conversion of this thing called histidine to histamine. And that's what when you ingest it. So, once it's converted, it's done.
1: Yeah. But it makes you sick. Yep. Not good. So, that goes into, you know, proper fish handling and why <clears throat> most professional fishermen prefer to either eat fish from their own catch or from a friend that they know is handling the fish properly, too. Because
0: Right. <clears throat>
1: I mean, I I don't know. I've seen, especially when you go to some different places that don't have refrigeration. I mean, I went. We we uh, we caught some fish in. Let's just say it's it's an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and we caught a tuna and a and a wahoo. Brought them back, and they they just put them under the shade of the seat in the boat. Okay, so it's a hundred degrees there. These fish are sitting there. Then they bring in the boats, they put them on the beach. Then I was like, wow, we need to, nobody's cleaning these fish. I'm going to go ahead and clean them. So I clean the fish. Mm -hmm. You know, I just have a a bowl for them. No, no Ziplocs or anything like that. So I put them in the bowl. I take them into the kitchen, put them on the counter. Like, here's, here's the fish we caught tonight. Okay. It's going to be for dinner tonight. So I go back in before dinner a couple of hours later and there's the bowl sitting on the deal. Of course, that's also what we had for dinner. So those right. fish had been out for five or six hours. Wow. Yeah. Like not not it, ideal. Not ideal at all. I mean it you know,
0: intercoastal a lot of boats have big live wells now. You know, you don't back ice, you can you know, we've we've put fish in the live well until we got back to the dock. And then, you know, gone right to a gas station, put ice, you know, empty a lava, put ice on them. That's an option. You know, most people have coolers. It's not ideal maybe for some people to put their fish in with their sandwich or their drinks. You know, I don't want my, you know, I don't want my bottled water to taste like, you know, the sea trout I just caught. But uh, it should be refrigerated. Absolutely. And, it and, tastes uh, a
1: thousand percent better.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, think what about. about
1: um, what about if you catch some fish, amberjacks are known for this, sea trout, worms. You cut them. They've been handled perfectly. Yeah. You've got them, you know, you put them in an ice water slurry immediately off the hook mm-hmm. and uh, they're handled perfectly, but you cut them open and they got worms.
0: So, you can actually cut around the worms and, and most people will find that acceptable. You know, some people gross grosses them out, but you can cut around those and you're okay. Some people still get worried about it. And so, you know, the answer is a freezer fish. So. Most commercial uh, freezing uh, uh, freezers are way, way colder than, you know, at a, at home f- a freezer. So they can freeze a fish for like 15, 18 hours and it's fine because it's, I think it's around negative 40 degrees. Most home freezers are around zero. You got to freeze them for a week if you're really mm. concerned about it. So, really? yeah, so that's, that's kind of where the air goes. Well, I froze it overnight. It's fine. Well, um, in a home, home uh, freezer, It needs to be frozen for, you know, almost a week in order to ensure that that's not the case.
1: I called a sushi place one time because we caught some tuna and I thought, well, you know, I'm okay at making sushi rolls, but maybe we could take this in. And they insisted that whatever, they wouldn't do it. They said, no, we have to use our fish because they were concerned that about this. And they said that every fish that they get in the sushi place is frozen. Mm-hmm. Like super flash frozen mm-hmm. or whatever, and you see that with the tuna the big tuna that they bring in, yeah. and they flash freeze them right there, and they 're just like a block of ice when they go when the when the buyers are coming through right, and I guess that's that's for this they kill that that kills everything right
0: yeah, there you go and so and you know if you end up getting a parasite, you know most of the time the treatment is just some medications for that, but that's very very rare um we don 't see or hear hear about this a lot, I know it does happen, but it's not as common as people worry about. You know, you cut the worms out, you freeze it for, for an adequate amount of time and you should be okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. You've got on this list, you have mold. Mold, check your drinkware, which I do know about this. Um, but what <clears throat> what what can what kind of problems can that cause if you're drinking stuff out of moldy, moldy drinkware? So um, I actually just became aware of this, you know, not,
0: not to call it any specific company, but there's a lot of, Metal thermoses—that's kind of the the fab right now—is uh, you know a bunch of companies make these you know metal insulated drinkwares, and they're fantastic. The issue is somebody takes the same cup and they use it for two months. You know they they fill up with coffee, go to work, they never wash it, and it's not just the cup they don't wash, but the top, and the top's got a rubber gasket on mm-hmm. it. Um, anybody that's on a boat for any period of time, you wash the deck—you know you're going to hurry—you wash the deck of the boat, you put it away. Next time you wash the boat, you open the latch up, and where that rubber gasket is, there's all that mold. Yeah. And it's the same thing on your drink, actually. So, um, so uh, a lot of people are, don't get any illnesses from mold, but it can cause a, a whole variety of illnesses to some people. There seems to be some type of uh, genetic modification where some people get extremely ill. They almost get like uh, a terrible immunodeficiency syndrome. Wow. And they, they get malabsorption, and, and they look very, very, very sick. That's very, very rare, and that's extreme. But more commonly, people get you know cold symptoms, flu symptoms, you know. Hey, I, I haven't felt well for a while, and your and your body will clear that over time. But you know, nobody would intentionally go lick a boat deck with that mold on it. And, <laughs> and it's just, I mean, you, you think it's funny, but it's true. I mean, somebody might have peed on them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> but if you take your if you take your lid and you and all you have to do is take that lid, take the lid and take the rubber gasket off. Right. Wash it with some soap and water, and it's it's an easy fix. I right, mean,
1: but even some of the some of the ones that I'm, I'm I'm I know what you're talking about. You can even put it in the in the dishwasher, but because that rubber gasket's there, it's not taking care of the problem. Just right. like just like the one you have right there. Like, but if you when you put that in the dishwasher, you're saying just just roll that you know, gasket take, down. Yep, take the gasket off and put it in the dishwasher.
0: You can put it in the dishwasher. You can soak it in some you know bleach water, some soapy water. You know, warm soapy water, again, wash it off, you know, soak it, wash it off. Right. You should be good to go, and you put it back.
1: What about the Camelback? Like, I've got these, you know, Camelbacks for everything. These seem to be the worst possible culprit because there's a three-foot, two-foot hose. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. When it's clear, you can clearly see the mold inside of it. Right. And then it's got a fitting Where there's like all kinds of edges around that fitting and then you got a mouthpiece and then you have this whole bladder. Yep. So (laughs) how do you clean that off?
0: So I had this issue a lot with with, uh, water bottles for bicycles. I used to ride a bike a lot. And, you know, at the time people were using plastic bottles and they would get mold same as any other, you know, plastic. Um, And so really bleach water works really well. And it's kind of the same with anything. Like you don't, you wouldn't take a, something that was leather and wet and just put it away. You, know, you bring it back out, it would be bad. So you want to clean this out and let it air out and air dry. So same with the Camelback. When you're done with it, you want to rinse it out, you want to clean it out, and then just let it air dry before you store it back away. You wouldn't want to store anything wet. I mean, that's how mold happens. You, you store something. Like Think about a tent. You, you know, if you went right. camping and then the last day you pack your tent up and it's wet, what do you do when you get home? Right. You You got to air it out. Yeah. You put it back up and you you let it air out once it's dry. Then you pack and you put away. You don't pack it away wet. And that's, you know, that's a big prevention key. And that's probably true for camelbacks or any of these other water containers as well.
1: Right. And if you do see that mold in there and you put bleach in there, is that enough to to kill that mold Uh, where it won't make you sick anymore? Disappear. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, they, they also make brushes. I think. I think Candleback may make a brush, but there's an aftermarket brush you can you can get where you can run it down there as well, yeah, that helps us stir that up and agitate that as well yeah
1: that it, the whole thing's disgusting to think about like the <laughs> the mold i don't know i don't really i don't know if it would hurt me or not, but that's that's kind of gross, so the last thing that you had here, which is probably a good little piece to uh to talk about uh it's not entirely medical. But you said that all of your um, experience is either through spending too much money or having something go bad on you. And you, you kind of included a boating checklist here. And one of the things that I want to talk about with boating checklist is like what would be a medical kit that or what would be what should be included in a medical kit? And my son, I'd be interested to hear your opinion on this. After he got back from his, his EMT course, I'm showing him my medical kit, mm-hmm. and he's like, do you know how to use that? And I said, no. And he said, well, it probably doesn't have any business being in your medical kit then. Like, you should know what everything is and how to use it in your kit. But yeah. I don't know. I always kind of thought, well, maybe there'll be somebody <clears throat> else that knows how to use it.
0: That's, and that's what I was going to say. Some people carry um, pieces of first aid equipment that they may not know how to use, but there's a high chance that somebody else may know how to use it. Um, and so it's not about if you have space, I mean, uh, and the, and the thing about prudent about first aid kits is you you can't carry an ambulance around with you. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to be burdened with too much if you're backpacking, um, or even on a boat, you know, space is limited, but you want to, you want to take things that you can prudently take care of or you can stabilize before you go back. And that, that's kind of the big key with that. Um, real quick, I'll talk about the check boating checklist. If you look at pilots, pilots have flown for 20 years. They still go through a checklist. You know, they're experts at that. They've flown a plane for twenty years. Still go through a checklist. So I'm guilty of this. I know friends are guilty of this. You take everybody the, to the to the boat ramp. You put everybody in the boat. You get in, and everybody's having a good time. You're like, crap! I left the boat plug out. Yeah, you know,
1: that's the most important piece of equipment <laughs> there is.
0: And and so you know, somebody asks, well, how can you forget that? Well, you get such in a routine, and you forget the small details because you're making sure your kids have their juice and their life jacket, and everybody's happy and everybody's safe. And you forget these small things. So, and even small things like putting the antenna down before you drive down the road. I mean, I can't tell you how many antennas I've replaced. <laughs> I even had to call roadside assistance because I forgot my my uh, lug wrench for our trailer. So, several of my friends have just gotten the boat, and they asked me, "Hey, what's a good tip?" I said, "Make a checklist of things that you think are important. You know, the night before, before you leave in the morning, at the boat dock, and before you come home, and then just go through that. It's super easy. You know, you can laminate it. Costs a dollar to do, and." It'll save you a lot of hassle. I mean, we've all lost, you know, rafts and stuff we left in the boat because you forgot to take the mat out or the cushion mm-hmm. out. And so um, uh, everybody's checklist is different depending on what you do. But it, it seems to work well for me. And and um, most of my uh, checklist is based off of mistakes I've made. Yeah. And um, so you talk about first aid kit. I'm going to put the headset down or yeah, maybe I can reach it here. For him. I carry a uh, yellow bag, which I guess I'll show right here. It's yellow because it's very easy to see on right. our boat. If I'm taking care of somebody, say, go get the yellow bag out of the front right compartment Mm -hmm. of the boat. It sticks out amongst everything else in there. And so what I have in my first aid kit, which we'll we'll go through here, shake it out and just empty it all out. And then we'll talk about what's in here and why. You know, I don't have surgery equipment in here or or tracheostomy supplies or anything like that. But I just have things that can either help stabilize an injury or things that can help prevent me from having to go back to the dock for the day. And there's some things that I may not have in here that somebody else may have because I know a way to improvise another device. Right, right. So, and so that's a big key about a lot of this is, you know, when you look at wilderness EMS, it's not just equipment you take, it's, you know, you can use two sticks to help stabilize a fracture. You don't have to carry a cast with you. You you can use two sticks and some cravats. So the first thing I do is I do have a commercially uh, prepared first aid kit. You can, you know, most marine stores sell these. Um, You should definitely, I think, it may be even required to have ladies on the boat. So I carry a basic first aid kit, you know, just a basic first aid kit in here. And it has a lot of things that scissors and band-aids. It's got, um, ice pack in it. It's got a wrap in it. It's got some gauze in it. And so, so basic things, you know, if somebody gets a small cut, a small minor injury at their house or not their house, on the boat or at the beach, they can take care of that. And so, what I've done is I've added a few things because I do enjoy going offshore from time to time. And the further you're going to be away from help, the more prudent you've got to be about your first aid or your knowledge to improvise some first aid items. So one of the big things I carry is I carry some of these advanced gauzes. These are readily available from, you know, on Amazon or other stores. And what these are, these, these uh, are gauze that have clotting factors in it. So if you cut yourself, you can put this, you know, on an injury and it'll stop the bleeding. And what I found from experience is, is for pressure dressing, an ACE bandage works almost as well as anything else. Um Tape is good. Hand pressure is good. But if you've got to get somewhere in a hurry, you can put a lot of pressure on somebody's injury just by putting gauze on it and put, put an ACE wrap on it. It's a fantastic way to help take care of bleeding. This also works well if you have, um let's say a broken leg or broken arm, you can use a stick or some other type of um, heart material in this and you can immobilize it. So, so gauze and ACE wrap is very, very, very handy. I carry a tourniquet. Actually, I think I have two tourniquets in here. I think I've heard somebody say, you know, two is one, one is none. Well, that is true with this. You know, if this, if one breaks, you have a second one. And so essentially, if you have a major, major cut to your arm and artery bleeding, you know, somewhere you have arterial bleeding and pressure won't stop it, then that's the time you've got to consider something like a tourniquet. Um, and these, these actually save lives. So it's, they're rarely available. They're not very expensive. Um, if you don't have one of these, you can improvise one. I think I brought a tow rope with me or a line. I actually didn't. I thought I was supposed to bring a line. Hmm. You can use a, a dock line, actually. Yeah. So um, the big issue, if you don't have a tourniquet and you want to improvise one, you use uh, a very sturdy line like a dock line. You, you tie it above the injury. And then once you tie it, you have to on top of that you have to tie what's called a lever or a lever. And essentially, what that does is that allows you to wind the tourniquet. So in this case, this commercially prepared one, you have a, a lever there. And so essentially, you twist this, and it twists tight on the injury until the bleeding stops. So if you let's say you don't have this, you can use a dock line, you could use a short gaff, you could use any small paw, a boat brush even. Uh, that might be a pretty extreme example, but you can use almost any type of. You know, firm, firm, rigid um, stick or or a device in order to wind that tight until the bleeding stops. So I use that. I typically keep some betadine um, on the boat. That's just to clean out wounds. Um, and then, as far as we talk about like jellyfish jellyfish stings, you know, I keep some Benadryl. Um, I keep some topical steroid cream, and then EpiPen. So well, can you
1: just get an EpiPen anywhere? Do you, does you, you that need, need prescription? Need to be a prescription. Yeah, for that? you need a
0: prescription. Luckily, I know somebody can write for these. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be very careful when handling these. Um, this is this is not something that you should play around with. There's a needle that will inject out of this when you pull a safety cap out, and it auto injects the medication into somebody. Um, you got to be real careful because some people want to um, say, "Oh, this is really neat," and they push the end of it, and then they <laughs> get you know, then their finger gets numb and they have to come to the ER. So, um, it, you know, if you don't have an EpiPen, you shouldn't probably be playing with it, but at least know where it's at. I have this because I'm allergic to bees. And then anecdotally, because of uh, jellyfish stings, I carry vinegar and baking soda. Um, I also have an ice pack in here. So if we're on a boat and we don't have access to hot water, although I just learned a great tip of advice for that, (laughs) you know, we'll uh, rinse it off, put some vinegar on it and some baking soda and then put an ice pack on it. And you can even use an ace wrap to put that on there. Um, I have a glow stick. This is primarily for light. You know, If you're going out at night or in the morning and, and, and somebody injures themselves, most boats have flashlights or lights available, but I always keep some form of light. This seems to be pretty easily available. And uh, lastly, when I talk about tourniquets, actually, I did bring something. I brought some 550 cord, actually, for that. So you can definitely use a 550 cord as a tourniquet. If you've ever had a tourniquet placed on, it, they're very, very painful. The, the person that you put it on is not going to like you very well, but... Again, this is a life-saving measure, so it's life over limb. So if you think that someone's going to lose their life, you, you take a risk of sacrificing the limb by cutting the blood flow off to it. And the reality is we don't see a whole lot of limbs being sacrificed for that. I mean, you can have a tourniquet on for quite a good bit of time. Mm, really? Yeah. So, you, you know, people used to think that you should turn them on, turn them off, you know. But, but the reality is we, we see people have these on for quite a long time, and they're okay. What else do we have here? I think that's it in my, in my first
1: aid kit but that's you know that's a very thorough first aid kit but it it's not something that's going to be burdensome for the boat you could carry that in a canoe you could carry right. that basically uh even in a in a kayak but certainly on a on a skiff or a bay boat you could easily easily have all of this stuff
0: well I, uh just go back to when I was a boy scout be prepared right that's the uh boy scout motto yeah
1: i think it still is it is i think i don't know so, never know what's going on with the boy scouts these days Okay, cool. Well, that's about everything that, that I can imagine asking and everything that would possibly happen on a boat. But, you know, the, the take home for me is, is, uh, I learned, I learned a lot about when I can treat something, even as a, as an untrained, uncertified person, when that untrained person can treat something and continue on about the day and when it's absolutely stopped down get back to the doc mm-hmm. you know even calling and radioing sure. your head to make sure and the heart attack was one of those for sure heart attack and stroke that's something I mean guiding is a game of numbers you know, the more people you take in the more situations that you take people in the more chances you have of someone getting hurt it's it's just it's gonna happen so if you are prepared and you know a little bit about what you're doing you can make sure that that when it does happen uh, you can either make the best of it and help them to not be any worse off Mm -hmm. or maybe you can even treat it right absolutely cool all right man well i appreciate you coming in i love it great it's a great thing and i guess if you're like max and you think i've got a great idea for a show call me up tell me we'll do it but I really appreciate that, man. I appreciate you uh, you putting all this together and doing all this research and, and coming in and, and talking about it. It's really cool. Really cool. I appreciate it very much. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. All right. See ya. All right. Be safe.